0: I have no recipe for anything except when you deal with people, you have to identify yourself with them. These are not target groups, I hate that, target groups, constituents, no they're not, they're people.
1: From the Oslo Forum, welcome to The Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today is Khaula Mata. until recently the UN Secretary General's Deputy Special Envoy for Syria. In that role, she negotiated local ceasefires amidst some of the most brutal and intractable conflicts of our age, winning plaudits for her fearlessness and the UN Secretary General's Courage Award. She came to mediation via journalism, covering wars, military coups, and social unrest across the Middle East. Khawla Matar, welcome to the Mediator studio.
0: Thank you so much, Ali.
1: You studied psychology and became a journalist, working in war zones across the Middle East and Europe. Yeah. And I think one of your early assignments was covering the civil war in Lebanon. How did you end up there?
0: I had a scholarship at the American University in Beirut, and the war started. So uh, we were shifted, all of us, 57 Bahraini students to Texas. I didn't graduate from Texas, I graduated from Arkansas, and that's another story. So anyway, returning to Bahrain, starting to work in a daily newspaper, I thought we need to cover the civil war. I went to the editor-in-chief and I said, I want to go to Lebanon to cover the civil war. It was 84. And he said, no way. I know Bahrain is very small. I know your father, if anything happens, I can't face that man. And I said, I'm going. He said, no. I said, I'm going. So I took the next flight. I didn't tell my family except my sister. It goes to Cyprus. I told my father I'm going to Cyprus for vacation. (laughs) The flight stops in Beirut and I landed there. And I spent two weeks. Went through a lot. It was painful, but it was also a crazy war. People were by the beach. And I couldn't believe it. And... uh, Rockets were thrown from everywhere, and bodies of young people, uh, young men were at the front lines, so it was a bit crazy. Anyway, I went back to Bahrain, and that attorney, I said, now I have the story, you want to publish it, or shall I give it to someone else? I published it. That was my start with covering wars.
1: And then you went on to cover others as well, because you went to the former Yugoslavia, also reported on the invasion of Kuwait.
0: I covered the Iraq-Iran war, the ship war in the Gulf, Yemen, South Yemen. We were four women with 300 journalists, and I was the only Arab, and it was an Arab country, Yemen. I was the only Arab, so most of the journalists wanted me to be with them all the time because I was the only one who can speak to You know, fishermen coming, bringing people from Aden and all of this. Then I went to, yes, I went to Sarajevo. And it was a huge comparison to war in Lebanon also. Uh, It had uh, similarities of sectarian, what looked like sectarian. But I always believed that the deep-rooted things are not religion or sects. It's Mm. politics, it's power. Mm. I got used to being in the front line and shot at.
1: In two thousand and six, you leave journalism. Yeah. You know, you had a big job as an editor of a national newspaper, and then you ended up working at the UN's International Labour Organization yes. in Lebanon. Yes. What happened
0: there? I was banned from uh, from working as a journalist in Bahrain. I had uh, because you were
1: strongly critical.
0: Yes, I used to be summoned uh, every morning. I go to the newspaper at seven, and they say, "Office of the Minister of Information called." And he wants you in his office. He will call me to his office and he says, What next? The Americans are very upset with your articles. The Saudis are very upset. Who else? Who else is not upset with you? <laughs> Every morning there's somebody who's upset with you. Then at some point he said, No use of keeping you writing. We will stop. So he took they took my press card and I sat for six months without a job. The regional director of ILO saw me in a conference in Cairo. And he told me, would you work for the ILO? I said, the UN? He said, yes. Oh, you're a, uh, what an organization. You're doing nothing. People are suffering. He said, come on and join us. I was really very cynical about the UN. I was young, cynical about everything. So I joined the ILO. I'd
1: like to move on to Syria, where you've spent yes. a long part of your career. Mm-hmm. In March 2011, war breaks out between President Bashar al-Assad's regime and various opposition groups. Yes. Where were you at the time?
0: I was head of the UN Information Centre in Cairo. I was in Tunisia when the uprising in Egypt, and things got really heated. And I've, I got a phone call, we need you back in Cairo. So I flew to Cairo, on my way to Cairo, the military in Egypt issued a curfew at four. I remember I arrived at four and left the airport and there is no taxi, no car. Uh, The driver from the office calls and says we couldn't come because curfew. When was that? While you were flying back. So that was another adventure. I remember I saw two young men in a car and I said... Would you take me to Dui? Both of them looked at me, and they were laughing. There's military checkpoints, and we can't. I said, I'll give you 2,000 Egyptian pounds. 2,000? Yes, of course. Jump in. So I jumped in, uh, and I was sitting in the back seat, and the two of them were smoking hash. Uh, And so they were high, and we went through the uh, narrow sides of Cairo, I arrived home and I made it with the two men. (laughs) It was so funny an experience.
1: (laughs) From being in the throes of the Arab Spring, eventually Staffan de Mistura, Mm. a Special Envoy to Syria from 2014 to 2018, asked you to be his head of office.
0: First, Special Envoy Akhdar Brahimi came to Cairo and shifted his office to Cairo and he had a spokesperson who left the office? He didn't want to be in Cairo, so they reached out to me and said, "Can you help us?" And then Ibrahimi said, "We're going to Geneva, and I would like you to join our mission." So I joined that mission and left when Mr. Ibrahimi left. So all of a sudden, Mr. Demestura asked me to be the head of his office
1: in Damascus, and I understand that there was uh, quite a few skeptics about. Oh, you I was that the role. joke
0: of the UN. Why? Because they were say, oh, an Arab woman, a Muslim, going to talk to, when I went 2015, 14, 15, uh, Damascus was surrounded by hundreds of armed groups. So you needed to negotiate with these extremists. And so they were saying, oh, would they accept a woman? And so I landed in less than seven days. I was in Aleppo with my colleague uh, Marwa, two women. Arab and Muslims. So, and uh, we started to talk to armed groups. We crossed lines. And then I started to engage with each and every one. And in Syria, things spread so fast. All of a sudden, my phone number is with each and every... You open my phone, and I think if the securities or checkpoints at airports see the names for uh, <laughs> extre- mm. what, they, what they call extremists are on my phone...
1: And to give our listeners a sense of what you were stepping into Mm. when you arrived in Damascus, like just give us a a brief picture of what was happening in the war at that time and and what you were trying to achieve in the midst of that.
0: When I joined our offices, the team of the special envoy were at the third floor of the Sheraton Hotel, what used to be Sheraton Hotel. So the staff members coming to the office in the morning, many times are stuck while mortars are landing on the streets of Damascus and in front of the Sheraton. In fact, we were going for dinner one night at 7, and a mortar landed in the swimming pool of the Sheraton, while one of our colleagues, head of FAO, was swimming uh, as an exercise. And I got so scared for her, I rushed back, and she was okay because the mortar did not explode, but she was uh, in a terrible shape. And then uh, we were asked to move to the four seasons, as everybody knows, the four season was attacked. So after that, it was a continuous challenge to cross line, and the office special envoys. We took the lead in negotiating crossing, so that humanitarian assistance could reach each and every Syrian.
1: I'm interested in how you were perceived locally and and did anyone say oh you know she used to be a journalist was that an issue at all or you can kind of somehow put that to one side and operate in a neutral way
0: that journalism experience helped me a lot because I've seen a lot and it helped me a lot in negotiating because we as journalists have to negotiate each and every story and especially me I was all the time tackling the most sensitive so you need to convince someone that you're truly interested in the story, not in making a name as a journalist. You've been
1: negotiating for a while, in other words.
0: And the thing that is very, it's amazing, is in six months, those who were very cynical were seeing me sitting with armed groups, with long beards, asking, we want to talk to Khawla. Mm -hmm. Not because Khawla, because what is Demistura thinking of? Where is he going with the political? Questions related to solutions, to peace building. And they knew that they need to take it from the political side of the UN.
1: And what was your approach to building trust with these people who you were meeting on the armed group side? And and also on the other side of it with the Assad government. Yes. To have the space to operate to be able to meet those people and do that.
0: I think the main thing is that they felt that I had no agenda. Even the UN agenda was not my agenda. (laughs) My agenda was to help Syrians.
1: And they felt that?
0: They felt it. In fact, I think I got to cross into many places because of the trust of the Syrian government. And I was accused by the Syrian opposition of being so close to the Syrian government. But my job was in Damascus. And they forget sometimes my job was to save lives. Every time I used to cross... I used to go back and be very frank in reporting the miseries inside to all parties, not only to the Syrian government. I used to tell the Russians. I used to tell the Iranians. I used to talk to Hezbollah. All those involved, I reached out and said, we need to do something. And we need to work together to save Syrians. So I think the trust was this. The second thing with the armed groups, I respected very much the culture, so I was not ready to go without a veil. Not because I was faking it. I know that they know that I'm not a veiled Muslim woman. And when they asked me, I said, yes, but I have high respect for you. But the the main thing is that they felt I trusted them. I trusted what they told me. So when I crossed line, I trusted that I'm safe. Yes, And people are saying, how could you trust uh, crossing into areas where there were Nusra and ISIL? I have to say that it's not true that each ISIL is a terrorist or Nusra, and I, I know many people will be very angry with me. Syrians were forced many times and had no other option but to carry arms. It's not to give excuse to them, but I just say sometimes it's Ideology. Sometimes it's false interpretation of things. Sometimes it's the lack of knowledge. Sometimes it's ignorance. Mm. And sometimes, very important in the Syrian crisis, there are differences on the cause of the crisis. In Aleppo, I think it's a highly a class struggle, and I saw it. There were the rich sitting in Aleppo city, and served by the rural people who were very poor not seen by them so they were grudges that were class more than freedom democracy
1: i'd like to get a better sense of what you managed to achieve especially at a local level talk our listeners through for example what lifting a siege on a town
0: involves oh <laughs> that's uh, i did this in many towns in in syria but i I think the main one is Daraya. Daraya was sieged for more than three years. So they told me, why don't you try and break the siege and come? So I keep calling every day persons in charge at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and say, I would like to go to Daraya. And they say, no. What? Daraya? I remember current Foreign Minister Dr. Mokdad, who I have high appreciation for how he helped me. He called me, uh, it was a Thursday night at 9, and he called and he said, okay, you can go to Daraya. I said, so tomorrow? He said, no, Khawla, it cannot be tomorrow. Wait until Saturday. I mean, it's 9, so we need to prepare for that. Saturday, I went to cross on one condition that I had nothing with me, uh, and I had only uh, the security, UN security and the office security, and one colleague from my office from the office special envoy. That's all. So we were two cars. And we stayed at the checkpoint for them, which was a usual practice, to clear the mines and all. And then um, started to cross. And there is a distance between the checkpoint and where the armed groups and the people of Daraya uh, were waiting for me. It's like less than half a kilometer, but it, it had snipers. And all of a sudden, they were shooting and fire. And the security, the UN security, was saying, shall we drive back or continue? So I called my sources inside Daraya, and they said, continue. Try to maneuver and continue. So we continued. I arrived there, and I stayed in Daraya many hours. When we were in Syria... Uh, we broke all UN regulations and rules. There were not a single uh, mission before that that uh, allowed to stay in an area that is not under the government control of a country overnight. But many times we stayed overnight.
1: And once you take that sort of incredibly risky entrance into mm-hmm. that area, mm-hmm. how do you go about negotiating with the armed groups about the siege? What arguments are you deploying with them?
0: Daraya was completely destroyed. Not a single stone over stone. So people were actually living underground. I remember first I was taken to a mosque. Under the mosque there was a big hall, and there were women and children. It was, I don't know, more than a hundred. Each one wants to talk her story, and bringing her child. I told them, I'm here to listen to each and every one. My message to you is that you're not forgotten. The whole world knows about you. The whole world now wants to provide you with the security you deserve. And I promise you that I and the special envoy as UN will do our best to save you. So tell me your stories. And so I listened for these stories. And then I went to school. And I have pictures also of these schools where textbooks teach young children of Syria is a rich country. So they teach them apples, strawberries, apricots. The teachers told me we had to remove these because the children do not know anything about them. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't want to make them even more uh, feeling of deprivation. I mean, they, they, there I found the first time I learned about what later I learned in all the f- sieged areas. It's called, in Arabic, uh, the soup of the sieged, which is uh, the women were boiling water, putting whatever spices they have, black pepper, little rice, little lentils, pieces, small pieces, and feeding their children and families. So I was offered that soup in a plastic bag. I felt so bad to drink it because I didn't have one simple item of food in the car with me. I wasn't allowed. So I couldn't offer the children anything. The only thing is that I sat with them. I hugged and kissed everyone. I wanted to kiss and hug and stay They were lovely, and they were singing, and uh, it was heartbreaking. Then I went to see and sit with the armed groups. And there I told them, the women told me, uh, they had enough. Uh, They've seen enough. They said yes. We're ready to uh, negotiate seizing clashes, but uh, with conditions. So I took all the conditions. I recorded everything. Then I went and met with civil society, with women activists, young men. So time flies. My satellite phone was not working, (laughs) like most of the times. The only source of comfort was the office was monitoring the news. And later on, people of Daraya were asked to be shifted to Idlib. So the men went area opened, first humanitarian delivery, and then it was opened.
1: Amazing. You've talked about the hope you place in young people. Tell me about some of the successes you've had there, particularly your work in Homs in central Syria.
0: Well, it was amazing to listen to young men and women from Salamiya who are against carrying arms and fighting. And Salamiya was many times almost sieged by ISIL or Nusra. Young men and women from Salamiya decided to defend Salamiya, but not to carry arms against each other and not to get used to solving their issues with arms. So they started their own courses, lectures, discussions on how to solve conflicts, personal, family, and country-wise, without carrying arms, without fighting, without shedding blood. These young people are amazing. The other amazing young people is when we crossed into Madaya and Zabadani. Young men treating injured people. And they were first year of medicine, so they didn't know much. How did they do the operation? Through WhatsApp, with doctors sitting, Syrian doctors sitting somewhere else. And so... I saw these operations on WhatsApp and it was so painful to see. Uh, They didn't have the basics to operate, but they did and they saved lives. Yeah,
1: And from that incredible sort of stories of of hope from a a local level Mm -hmm. to the higher politics... Mm -hmm. You know, soon after you become the Deputy Special Envoy, the Syrian Constitutional Committee was formed with the aim of bringing the parties together to discuss what a post-war constitution might look like. But it hasn't quite moved the political process forward as as fast as as one would hope. Mm -hmm. So do you think there's been an opportunity cost to the, the focus that's been placed on the constitutional process?
0: Well, I think we all have many times failed the Syrians and uh, lost opportunities were many. I've been with Syrians for a long period of time. I've seen how the war has drifted people apart. And so on local communities, on national level, and, and so we need to bring Syrians in the, in the same room. Mm. And I think if people thought that writing a constitution could solve crisis... I don't think constitutions are There are beautiful constitutions drift, drafted by beautiful brains, but not implemented. Yes. So what's the use? My biggest challenge was in the constitution Committee is to have Syrians engage together while we would be facilitating that engagement. They need to go through their angers and accusations, just like any human beings. They had anger. All are angry at each other. Angry, frustrated, blaming each other, pointing finger. It's a normal process. Mm.
1: On the one hand, you know, the fate of Syria is ultimately in the hands of Syrians themselves. Yeah. You know, but to what extent do you think the mediators themselves carry some responsibility for the state of the country? And you know, When you look back on the fundamental assumptions the mediators had over the past 10 years in Syria with hindsight are there things which you would now question
0: so i think yes there are lost opportunities because we as un in general not only the political are sometimes think that we are very close to the people we are serving but we are not we are not being close to syrians you have to feel their suffering You have to sit with the women in Bikar Valley and in the northern of Lebanon and in Gaziantep and inside Damascus and Aleppo and listen to them saying, I have a family member who is either detained by one party or another or missing for years. You should listen to the lady who says, I know my husband died in detention. I just want to bury him. Grief. And close the file. Mm. Until now, I feel my husband is still there. And I talk to him every night. So if you don't get close to that, if you don't go to Damascus, if you don't go to Homs, to Aleppo, and see Syrians digging food from the garbage, you cannot solve. You cannot feel, we say it's Syrian-led, Syrian-owned, yes. But you need to be syrian inside you Mm. and carry that case with you.
1: So it must be frustrating for you, I imagine, when the world's attention begins to turn elsewhere and Syria, so many issues remain unresolved. Mm -hmm. How problematic is that lack of attention? And are there ways in which it can actually be an opportunity because Mm -hmm. foreign powers are are looking elsewhere?
0: Well, people were saying Ukraine is an opportunity, but uh, Ukraine is not an opportunity in Syria. It's the same powers are involved in Ukraine. If they don't solve Ukraine, if you don't solve the Iranian nuclear deal, it all has an impact, has an impact in Syria. But yet, yes, I know that sometimes people's focus is in, a, in another direction. And in fact, I tried my best during the past few months to protect Syrians' from being drawn into discussion about their position in Ukraine.
1: I um, would like to try to bring out some of the lessons from, from your, your long career, uh, Kaula. And When we were doing research for this interview, mm-hmm. I found somebody had written about Kaula Matar's recipe for peace. And I'm sure that kind of thing embarrasses you enormously. (laughs) (laughs) But if I forced you to share its ingredients, Mm. what would they be?
0: Well, I have no recipe for anything except when you deal with people, you have to identify yourself with them. These are not target groups. I hate that. Target groups. Constituents. No, they are not. They are people and I'm there to help them, help them through them telling me how could I help them.
1: And now you've left very recently your role as deputy special envoy. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether because you used to be a journalist, whether you feel that speaking truth to power now you can <laughs> return to that. Or yeah,
0: No, I, I, I just felt that I can't put my eyes in the eyes of Syrians anymore and uh, just keep promising, we need to do more. As a UN, as international community, all of us need to work together to give hope. My job was to give hope to Syrians every time I meet them. And I still have hope for Syria. And I think Syrians, uh, I tell them all the time, I said, you will set the example, the moment there is peace, real peace, it will take time, everything, Syrians will rebuild their country wonderfully. They are wonderful people. Wonderful in terms of their love for life, their ability to adopt, and their perseverance. They know that they can build their country, they love their country, and I think I've never seen so many people loving their country the way the Syrians love their country. And that's very touching.
1: Well, on that hopeful note... Thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio.
0: Thank you, Adam. Thank you.
1: And that's it for this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also drop me a message on Twitter at AdamTalksPeace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our Managing Editor is Christina Buchhold. The series editor is Evie Krasner and the producer is Chris Gunness. Big thanks also to the production teams in Geneva and Oslo. I hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, this is Adam Cooper. Thanks for listening.